morning, church. Uh, we're back in Mark today. Finally jumping into chapter 2. So you guys can turn there uh, as, as we kind of get ready. Um, if you don't have a Bible this morning, there are house Bibles at the end of each row. All you got to do is uh, give an awkward look or a poke to the people near the row, and they will get you one. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we would, man, we, we value uh, the Word of God here at Red Tree, and we would invite you to just grab one of those and take it home. Um, or if, if all the ones around you are too heavily, heavily coffee-stained, just let one of our elders know, and we will get you a nice Bible. We want to make sure everybody has access to the Word of God. Uh, so we're in, we're in Mark today, um, and, and I got to be real with you guys. I, man, I just had, I just had a hard time writing, writing this week. And, and I think it comes back to this idea that I think, I think I overthought it. I think I put way too much thought into the text because it's so familiar. Uh, but I, I, I really think there's something important for our body here today. And so we're going to jump into this, um, and, and, and I think we'll be blessed. We're in, we're in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to start in the first verse of the second chapter here, and it says this, the first verse of the second, second chapter of the gospel according to Mark. And when he, he being Jesus... Returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit what they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And this is the word of the Lord. So this is a familiar story to a lot of us. I know I say that a lot, but it's just, it's just the reality when you're studying one of the gospel narratives that, that you end up hitting these stories that, that are really like just kind of Sunday school fodder. And if you, if you grew up in the church or spent a lot of time in the church, like, like this story, I don't know if you guys can see this, like this has every element necessary for a good flannel graph, right? <laughs> like there's Jesus there's a miracle, there's some kind of weird quirky hook, like there's, there's the whole thing with the roof, like this is just perfect Sunday school fodder, which is not a bad thing, but, but what it can do is, for, for those of us who are more churched in our history, we can, get, we can get numb to stories like this. And so I know some of you in the room are like, I didn't grow up in Sunday school, I'm not numb to this story. Awesome. For the rest of you, let's try and channel our inner, I didn't go to church growing up this morning, right? Let's, let's try and look at this story afresh. I, I, think, I think we'll benefit from it if we do. Um, 
really quick to kind of bullet point out this story so that we can get into some of the meat. The, the short version of this is Jesus, if you remember, he's been, he's been out traveling throughout all of Galilee preaching, right? So in our, in, our last, in our last chunk of the text, there was this moment where people were, were crowding around Jesus in Capernaum for healing, and he steps back and he goes, hey, listen, I'm going to go ahead and just leave and not keep healing these people because I came here to preach. And so I'm going to go throughout all the villages and preach, right? Like that's kind of the deal. He's, he's spent an amount of time traveling around the whole region of Galilee preaching, and now he's returning home to his home base in Capernaum. And, and this doesn't really matter, but just in case you're the person who reads your study notes in the Bible, that there is some debate when it says Jesus returned home about whether he returned back to Peter's home that we read about in the beginning of, ch- or the beginning of chapter 1 there, or if uh, he actually had purchased a home in Capernaum, uh, which is really weird to think about, right? It's weird to think about Jesus having a house in a city that people vandalized, <laughs> but, but uh, that, that is, that it, you could read that either way, and there's, there's scholarly arguments for it. I don't think it really affects our interpretation of the story, although some, some people think it does, which is why you'll see it in your study notes sometimes, but the point is, Jesus' home base is in the city of Capernaum, and so he has returned home after a season of extensive preaching, teaching, and healing around the region. And as soon as he gets home, the crowds figure out he's home, and they rush around the house again, and it, it escalates. And if you read back uh, in 133, it says the whole city gathered around at the door, but now it says there are so many people you couldn't even get to the door, right? The The crowd is bigger than it was last time. They're gathered around the house, and Jesus is essentially just hanging out at home preaching to the crowds that are there. Well, the crowds keep gathering. They keep getting bigger, and it gets to the point where this group of friends bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed, and they can't actually get to him because of the crowd. So being the reasonable and thoughtful young men they are, they decide to cut a hole in the roof and lower him down, uh, which... By the way, can, can you think of a choice of action that is not more stereotypical group of guy friends thinking, right? Like, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute, but I just want to point out that that seems ridiculous until you think about it for about 30 seconds and you think, yeah, what would a group of five 20-year-old guys do with presenting that problem? They would cut a hole in the roof. So they cut a hole in the roof, they lower their friend down, Jesus uh, responds by forgiving the guy's sins. These religious leaders who are there to hear Jesus' teaching, presumably, uh, and we'll actually find out this in detail later on in chapter 3, but, but uh, Jerusalem is sending religious leaders to hear Jesus' teaching to weigh it because he's gaining more of a following and they want to see whether or not he's a heretic. And Jesus proclaims the forgiveness of this guy's sins, which those religious leaders then determine to be heresy. Uh, and so they're sitting there, in their, in, in, in their seats going, what the heck, this guy's blaspheming. And Jesus then calls out their thoughts, which can you imagine that, by the way, if we're sitting in here and just one of the pastors just like, I know what you're thinking. And just, just Gary Smith, I know what you're thinking right now. <laughs> Sorry, Gary. <laughs> Jesus calls out their thoughts and then goes, oh, you think I can't forgive this guy's sins? Well, how about I just heal him? right? And so he does that. The guy's healed. He gets up and walks out, and the story ends with everyone glorifying God, going, we've never seen anything like this. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. 
I want to walk back through this story slower so that we can point out a couple contextual things, a couple historical things that we might miss. I think that'll lead us to a really important point that Jesus is making. That, that'll take us to some reflections in the Psalms, uh, and, and we'll end out our time this morning with Paul's teaching in the first chapter of Colossians, and, and, and it'll be good. So here's, here's the, the first thing I want us to wrap our head around with this story. So Jesus is back home, and the crowd is huge, right? The crowd is bigger than it was in the middle of chapter one, the first time when he left to go preach, right? Remember, we, we talked about that aspect that Jesus had essentially just spent a day just like, like just healing over and over and over, assembly line healing this mob of people. And he gets to a point where he just says, this isn't why I'm here. I'm not just here to heal every sick person I meet. There's something bigger than this. And if you remember uh, in, in 1 verse 15, when it talks about the message that Jesus proclaims, he's here to proclaim the kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. He's not just about doing miracles over and over and over, but those are connected to his proclamation of the immediacy of the gospel and the immediacy of God's kingdom. So he says, I'm not going to just stay here and assembly line heal people. I'm going to travel around and preach this message to all who are in Galilee. And he does so. We notice that, that when he comes back here to Capernaum, the story is similar but different, right? He's still in a house. There's still huge crowds gathering around him. But now, rather than assembly line healing people all night long, Jesus is inviting them to sit and he's preaching to them. He's, he's expounding the gospel. He's working his way through the scriptures, teaching them about God's kingdom, about his presence, about the God who is making all things new and doing it right now, which is beautiful. The problem with that is that because he's teaching instead of offering a service there's not, there's not an inflow and an outflow, right? Like there's not a line at his door where someone shows up, get their healing, and go home. People are coming and then staying. So the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and all of a sudden it's Jesus in his living room, and the living room's full, and then the kitchen's full, and then the overflow room is full, and then people are looking in the windows, and people are crowded at the door, and there's no way to get in anymore. So these, these bros show up with their friend, which, again, can't stress enough the image of just four guy friends <laughs> trying to help out their buddy. Like, this is like a college road trip movie in the Bible. I hope, I hope you know that. These guys show up. I have, so, you guys know young men make stupid decisions, right? Like, that's universally understood to be true. When I was in high school, my first car, my, actually, my first car was a pink limousine, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> but the first car I drove consistently in high school was this 1989 Chevy Cavalier Z24 convertible. It was an awful car. It was terrible. It left me on the side of the road all through high school. But it was a convertible. And so my friends and I would drive around in this car and, and go and do stupid stuff. I was living in O'Fallon, Missouri at the time. So we'd drive around and go to, the, go to the record store and go to the skate shop and go to each other's houses and all these different things. And one day we're driving down the street and my two friends who are in the back seat decide what would be a good idea right now while driving at 45 miles an hour would be to stand up in the back of this car with the top down, which seems like a good idea. So they did. And, and you know, we're laughing as high school guys do when risking their lives. 
and one of my friend's hats blows off, blows off and lands in the street. And so we, we slow down on, and we, we get on his shoulder and we're looking back at his hat in the middle of the street. This is, this is Highway K, which is like a Manchester road, right? And we're looking at this hat in the street. We're like, hey, how are we going to go get it? I was like, let's just walk back and get it. And he goes, no, 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 drive down and turn around so we can get on the other side, right? So we drive down, we turn our head and back. And, and my one friend goes, dude, don't stop. You just drive past it. And then I'll lean out the side of the car and I'll grab it. And I go, that's a great idea. And, <laughs> and then he says to my other friend, you hold on to my belt so I don't fall out. So he does. So he's leaning out the car and his friend's behind him holding his belt and he misses the hat. And, and what, what ensued was not exaggerating a half hour driving back and forth <laughs> on this section of Highway K, leaning out the side of my car at 45 miles an hour, trying to pick up a hat out of this one lane. And then he finally got it. And no one died. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's what we're talking about here, right? These, these guys show up with their friend and they see the crowds and they're like, man, we can't even get in there. But I can see him in there. Like, I know we can totally heal our guy. Dude, I've got this. Let's go up on the roof. We'll just, there's no one up there. We'll cut a hole in the roof and we'll lower him down. He'll be right there. What's he going to do? Say no at that point? <laughs> Dude, you're right. So they drag him up there and they, now really quick, you have to know, so these houses, right? These are, these are, uh, th- these are for the most part, actual like brick and mortar houses, but that's a little different than the way we think of it. A lot, a lot of the brick is like mud brick and the plaster is kind of like a, a more muddy plaster, right? So when you get on the roof, there's actual cross beams with actual timbers laid across them. And then across the timbers is like pot, like pottery scales, like, like tiles. Then over that is thatch. Then over that is dried mud, right? So like there's a roof here. This isn't like, this isn't like a leaf roof where you just like push them aside. These guys would have needed tools for this task and a good amount of time. So I need you to picture the scene like this. Jesus is in his living room. He's got these religious leaders who've traveled in from out of the city to come hear his teaching. He's, he's proclaiming the truth of the gospel from the scripture, right? He's teaching these guys about the kingdom of God from the scriptures they have. And every now and then there's just this... And people are kind of, what's going on up there? And then slowly it gets louder and they start hearing... And this goes on maybe an hour, maybe, maybe an hour and a half until and sunlight comes in. This is insane, right? When, when they finally lower the guy down into the room, everyone already knew what was going on for 30 minutes, right? <laughs> the joke has passed, and everyone's like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, all right, okay, there he is, cool. And can you, can you imagine that moment, right? Jesus, like, makes this profound point about God's desire and love for his people and the work he's doing to make all things new, and then, hey, this, it's, I mean, it is what it is. It's young men being idiots, but what I love is what happens next. You can, you can almost feel that moment, right? Like, when, when the guy's sitting there looking around and, and then all for the first time the paralyzed guy is actually thinking about how dumb an idea his friends had and he's looking up at them and they're going, he's right there. And he's looking around and there's all these religious leaders staring at him like, what are you doing? And he looks up at Jesus who's standing there and you're just, 
you're just waiting for the moment of rebuke, right? You're just waiting for the, what the heck are you doing? You're fixing that. You know that, right? But that's not his response. His response is, he's astounded at their faith. I love that. I love that Jesus' response is not rebuke. It's not, it's not even like joy. It's just like, man, you guys, like, you're determined. You're ready to get this done. And what I love is, it's not even the faith of the sick guy. It's his buddies. Jesus looks up at them and he's like, you guys are really into this thing, huh? And so he looks down at the guy and, and rather than any form of rebuke, he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't want to be too unspiritual while I'm preaching, but I think you guys can relate to me in this. That's kind of a disappointing response, right? I know that sounds terrible, but I want you to think about that for a moment. If you're this group of guys, if you're in this scenario, if you've just done what you did, and your buddy's sitting down there, and you're like, finally, he's not even mad, like he's gonna heal him, and then he's just like, your sins are forgiven. The dude's still paralyzed. This moment where you're like, cool, right? This is, this is a really, really interesting part of the story, and this is a piece I think we miss, because Jesus here, contextually, to the listeners, to the religious leaders there, we get a, a little image into the mind of the religious leaders, right? But, but to the audience, to the paralyzed man, to the friends, to the people at the door, this would have been an incredibly strange response. Because the reality is, contextually, to the listeners, Jesus didn't just, like, it's, on the one hand, like, it's kind of a bummer, right, that the guy is obviously there to get healed, and Jesus, who can obviously heal him, didn't. It's like, right off the bat, it's kind of a bummer. But, but beyond that, what Jesus actually offers to the guy is not anything anyone there was looking for. Jesus just solved a problem and answered a question that no one in the room had. And, and here's what I mean by that. We go really quickly to the religious leaders who, who call this out as blasphemy in their heads. They're like, what the heck? No one forgives sins except God. And that, by the way, was an important theological point at the time. When, when you think about a group of people who are being politically and spiritually repressed, right? The Romans don't just rule over them. They're not just their political leaders and not just their social leaders, but the, the religion of the people was intrinsically connected to the government. And so when the Romans ruled over the Jews, they intentionally blasphemed the scripture. They, they intentionally went out of their way to show we haven't just beaten you militarily and conquered you socially, but we have dominated you spiritually. You are weaker than us and submissive to us in every possible way. So if you're that person who, who you have access to the scriptures where your prophets say things like, hey, Jerusalem, because of your sin, God is going to allow you to be conquered and destroyed. If you're that person, the forgiveness of sins becomes an important theological issue, right? Because these people are experiencing the, what, what the scriptures declare to be the physical consequences of their sin. 
And at the same time, they have all these social powers seeking to delegitimize and blaspheme their holy scriptures. And so holding up orthodoxy, uh, specifically in the area of right and wrong, justice and injustice, sin and righteousness, was actually an important thing for the Jews of the day. And, and by the way, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but hopefully that strikes a mental chord for you to, be, to, to think about a religious person who feels like the culture is infringing on the truth of their spiritual beliefs and is delegitimizing the, the authority of their spiritual beliefs and is messing with their understanding of right and wrong, sin and not sin. It seems a little familiar, maybe. But these religious leaders are deeply concerned with defending orthodoxy. And what Jesus says goes against the orthodox teaching of the scripture at the time. There was, in fact, when they would talk, when the rabbis these days would talk about the forgiveness of sins, one of the phrases they would use in the teaching is, only God forgives sins, not even the Messiah can forgive sins, only God forgives sins, because they understood the Messiah to be a human being. Just a normal person who's been anointed by God the way the judges were, the way David was, the way Solomon was. They, they see the Messiahship not as deity, but just as a chosen person who leads the people back to the truth of Scripture. So, of course, the Messiah couldn't forgive sins, even though he's the most important person in their, in their spiritual anticipation. He doesn't forgive sins. Only God forgives sins. And so in this space, Jesus, subtle, not so subtly, through, through the use of the imagery of Daniel, declares himself to be the Messiah and declares that the Messiah can forgive sins, which would have been blasphemous to those religious leaders who, in their hearts, were seeking to protect the orthodox teaching of Scripture in the face of a culture that was trying to marginalize and repress spiritual truth pushed all their buttons when, when he did that. But on top of that, it's, it's unnecessarily confrontational on Jesus' part. And here's why. No one at that time was concerned about how they received forgiveness for sins. They, they were very concerned about who did the forgiving, and the hands of justice were in God's hands, not in society, not in Rome, not in the individual. They were in the hands of God. But in terms of actually receiving forgiveness, this is not something that weighed heavily on the hearts of the Jewish people. And the reason is really simple. They had access to the Torah. I don't know how often you guys hit up Leviticus in your morning reading plans. But if you read through the first four chapters of Leviticus, when he walks through, when, when God describes in detail the sacrifices for the people concerning sin, whether sins that were intentional or sins that were accidental, sins that were individual or sins that were communal, when, when they're spelled out, they always end with this line, he will be forgiven. And he will be forgiven. This, this church, by the way, is what sets apart Judaism from the religions of the day. Jesus, or, or God, through the Torah, declares in no uncertain terms exactly where you stand with him. He defines the relationship very clearly, and he gave his people explicit instructions on how to relate to him. And if they broke relationship with him, how to restore it. If you've sinned, 
You do this exact thing. You get this animal, you take it here, you do this, you cut it up, you do something with his liver, it's really weird, and then you're forgiven. You're good. So for Jesus to say to this guy, son, your sins are forgiven, really, in the moment, there would have been this, okay, I think they were already forgiven. I went to temple last Passover. (laughs) He's answering a question or seeking to fill a need that no one in the room really thinks they have. And so when they're upset with him, they're not upset at his declaration of forgiveness of sins. They're they're upset at, at the way he's trying to redefine the Messiah and define himself. They think he's giving authority to the Messiah that the Messiah doesn't have. It seems like blasphemy. They, they, the religious leaders, they miss the implication of what he's even saying because it's not a question people were even asking. Now this, this is important for us. Because you look at what happens, Right? He says this, the people don't really get it. And then he ends the time by saying, listen, so that you can know that the Messiah forgives sins, so that you can know that, I'm going to do the miracle you came here for in the first place, right? And so he heals the guy, and the guy gets up and walks, and everyone responds by glorifying God. The room breaks out in worship, right? Uh, There's a theologian, uh, P.H. Hunter, I think is his name, and he said it this way. He said, Jesus performed the visible miracle to give credence to the invisible miracle, right? Jesus does this thing that everyone in the room can see and no one can argue with to put weight behind the theological point he's just made because no one in the room was terribly concerned with the theological point he just made. It was blasphemous and it upset people it didn't even upset them enough to say anything it was just like what the heck does this guy think he is but jesus connects this visible unavoidable miracle with this point and the reason is really simple beloved jesus came to earth to forgive sins i can't i can't stress that enough jesus came to earth to forgive sins we, we see this. This is where Mark's brilliance as an editor and how he constructs stories comes into play. He's built this progression for us, right? Working through chapter one and making its way into chapter two. Jesus, when, when he starts his ministry, he begins by proclaiming the kingdom, right? We see that in, in chapter one, verse 15, 14 and 15. The time has come. The kingdom is at hand. And so with the first taste we get of Jesus' teaching, Jesus' purpose is, God is doing something right now. Don't think, don't wait, don't plan it out. Stop what you're doing and get on board with what God is doing. That's that's where Jesus' ministry starts. And he starts doing these miracles and people go, wow, this is crazy. God is doing something. He's healing all these people. And Jesus goes, no, stop the train. That's not what it's about. I'm here to preach and proclaim the word. 
Yes, the healings are a part of that, but I am here to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And so you get, as chapter one goes on, this realization that this kingdom is more than just the alleviation of physical circumstances. Yes, Jesus is alleviating physical suffering, but there's something in this proclamation of the kingdom that is more than that, that is bigger than that. And now we get that more and that bigger. Jesus says, this isn't just about making all things new. I'm making all things new by way of forgiving sins. Now that is fire. Because, guys, it all comes back to sin. It all comes back to sin. Sin is what is broken in this world. Sin is what is wrong with the world. Sin is what bogs us down. It's the cancer that makes us self-motivated and terrible to each other, but it's also the thing that is destroying the very place we live. The, the earth is groaning, awaiting its restoration because sin has broken the creation. You see, God is the source of life. We see that throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. God is the creator. Life comes from and is from and is sustained by him. It is the connection, it is the intimacy with God that allows for life and existence to even happen. Sin is separation from God. Sin is the disconnect from the source of life. The, the, the way I, the way I, have you guys ever seen these, um, these purposeless boxes. You ever seen these? It's a little wooden box with a switch on it. You press the switch, and a lid comes open, and a hand comes out and pushes the switch back, and then it closes and turns off. You should Google them. They're funny. It's a pointless, pointless machine. You flip the switch, and then it flips the switch back and turns off, and that's how it works. Because that's, that's sin. Sin is if you had a robot, if you had a robot, just a cool robot, but you didn't have batteries, you'd plug into the wall, and the only thing he was designed to do when you turned him on was unplug himself, that would be sin. It, it disconnects the creation from the source of its life. If God is what puts life into creation and sin has separated us from that, sin is killing the creation. It is destroying this thing that we call existence, piece by piece, day by day, minute by minute. Sin is what leads to natural disaster. Sin is the reason there are parasites that kill people. Sin is the reason there is illness and disease. Sin is the reason you are terrible to people you shouldn't be terrible to. It's killing everything. And Jesus came to earth to kill it. Amen. Come on. Jesus came to earth to forgive sins to destroy the curse. You see, this is, this is what I think we need to do with this today. And, and the reason I was torn over this is as I consider and as I reflect on our, our church as, as not only as a member but as a pastor, I, when I was thinking about this truth, this idea, Jesus came to earth to forgive sins. That's why he's here. And I thought about what do we do with that? I, I really became divided mentally as I thought about our church. And the reason is this. I think, I think there's a decent chance that a good chunk of our church falls on two sides of a line that's presented in this story. 
In this story, we have multiple characters aside from Jesus, right? You have Jesus, and you have the man whose sins he forgives, but then you also have these religious leaders, you have the man's friends, and you have the crowd. And, and here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to point out kind of these two, these two pieces that I feel like there's a decent chance a good chunk of our church falls on either side of this dividing line. And then, and then you can do the work of, of deciding if that's you or not. But, but, but here's the thing. I think a lot of us in this space right now as Red Tree really are these religious leaders in the story. And what I mean by that is we are... We are deeply concerned with the truths of the gospel and defending the truth of orthodoxy. And yet, somehow, that concern with the truth of the gospel has numbed us to the weight of sin. You see, Christ forgives sins. And a lot of us, if you grew up in church, have heard that every Sunday since you have heard, been able to hear that, right? Right? We've heard that over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and we've even received the gift of grace. We've received salvation. We've submitted ourselves to Christ. We're seeking to live in his church and to be a part of the work of the kingdom, and we become removed from that reality, and sin becomes less weighty. Well, yeah, we have sin patterns in our lives. We have stuff we still struggle with because everyone does, right? We're all sinful. God is gracious. He knows our frame. He knows we are but dust, and he forgives us, and that's true. Those are all true things. Those are orthodox things, and yet they can numb us. They can numb us to the weight of sin. They can, they can make it a little less, a little less unpleasant. We can, we can stray in our passion for the truth of the gospel, we can accidentally stray down the road to legalism or licentiousness, where sin just becomes a little less weighty to us. It seems a little more distant from us. It seems a little detached. And when we hear someone say, Jesus came to earth to forgive sins, we go, yeah, I know. No, 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 no. Jesus came to earth to forgive sins. Yes, I know that's like the basic truth of Christianity. No, 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 no. Jesus came to earth, which is dead and dying, which is disconnected from its life, which is going down a road that will lead to its eternal destruction. Jesus came to earth to forgive sins. He came to earth to fix everything that's broken. Everything. Not just like the lies you told to your parents when you were three before you got saved at VBS. Although he did that. Jesus came to earth to destroy sin. Come on. But there's, there's another piece here. There's, there's these crowds, right, who are gathered around Jesus, and we've talked about them several times. These are folk who, who don't really get Jesus they, they get that he has power, and they get that he can help them, but they're really there for the power, right? They're, they're there, they're desperate for some relief, they're desperate for some healing. They know that their lives are kind of terrible, and they really want relief, and they think Jesus can give relief. I, I think a lot of us fall down that side of the dividing line where we are so acutely aware of sin, or when I said that, I should say, we are so acutely aware of a sin. 
we become so laser-focused on some particular effect of the curse that it dominates our life. It's all we think about. Whether that's a personal sin that has, has its claws in you that has become habituated or life-dominating, or whether that's just something that, some injustice that was done to you or your family or even society that you have locked your claws on, and it is the only way you define brokenness in the world. And for Jesus to be Jesus, he better solve that thing. A lot of us become numb to sin. A lot of us become so focused on an aspect of sin that we miss the gravity of it. We miss the gravity of it through distance and numbness, and we miss the gravity of it through obsession and laser focus. We miss the gravity of it. I, uh, there are a few things less pretentious than referencing a church father in a sermon, but I'm going to do it real quick. C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to Athanasius's On the Incarnation, he said this, he's encouraging people to, uh, to read old books. And, and the reason, he says, is because we need other people's perspectives. We need old perspectives. And I love the way he says this. Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no cleverer than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we do. The difference is they didn't make the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing, and their own errors are now open and palpable and may not endanger us the same way. Two heads are better than one, not because either one is infallible, but because they are extremely unlikely to be fallible in the same direction. It is good to take a moment and reflect on how insanely these folk missed what Jesus was saying. We can read this story and I can say, hey, you know, honestly, uh, the idea that Jesus was there to forgive sins wasn't a big deal to those people. They, d- they just kind of missed it because they were like, what? Okay, we have Leviticus, like we've got that. It wasn't a concern to them. And we can hear that and go, man, that's kind of dumb. <laughs> didn't, they, didn't they realize didn't they realize that, that that sacrifice was a covering, but it wasn't a washing? That, that the weight of that sin still sat on them? Didn't they still feel the guilt for that? Didn't they realize that there had to be something complete to, to wash away that system? Because that system was never ending, and it, and it, and it actually like seemed like freedom, but it was bondage. Didn't they realize that? No, they didn't realize that. Because they only had what they had. And, and we don't realize how we numb ourselves to the gospel. In the same way that that these religious leaders were operating purely within orthodoxy by rejecting God, I need you to think about that for a moment. These dudes, using the access they had to the scripture from God they had and the theology and teachings of the orthodox teachers of the day and the church of the day, using every resource they had at the moment available to them, they operated within orthodox, conservative, theological belief and called Jesus a blasphemer. That's, that right there, I feel like, could be its own sermon. But here's the thing. They missed it with everything they had. And we can look back and so easily go, man, how they missed that. But it's just because we miss different things. We miss God differently than they do. We call Jesus a blasphemer in different ways than they did. We, we are just 
as numb to sin and Jesus' mission against sin than they are, just in different ways. We, we separate ourselves from it and we call it grace. We refuse to own the weight of our actions and in the midst of that we claim forgiveness and say, it's cool, I'm forgiven, it's good, it's good. We, we laser focus in on one area of the curse and we call that piety and we say, man, I'm just super convicted by this, it just rocks my world, but what we really mean is I am lazy and I refuse to acknowledge the weight of the greater curse. We miss Jesus just as badly, just differently. I, I, I want to do this with us today. I'm going to go back to the Psalms real quick. In Psalm 51, there's a reflection on sin that I think is beneficial for us, regardless of where you fall on that spectrum. I usually have a bookmark there, I don't. This is David's psalm of confession after his, his sins concerning adultery and murder and all those different things. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What, what David does here in this reflection is he, he gives this, this honest and gut-wrenching evaluation of the weight of sin. And, and by the way, it's actually really easy to pick apart his honest and gut-wrenching evaluation of his sin. Because there's stuff he says in here that sounds really self-centered, and really jerky. 
When he says things like, against you and you alone have I sinned, God, really? Because you killed a dude. And, and you ordered a bunch of your own men to essentially murder him. And a bunch of other guys died because of it. Oh, and you dishonored a woman and got her pregnant. Oh, and the baby died. So you didn't sin against any of those people. <laughs> right? Like, it's easy to pick apart from our perspective today. It's easy to think, it's easy to think that people back then were naive and they got it wrong. They just got it wrong a little differently, right? What's important here, what's, what's valuable for us here is this, this reality, this, this base weightiness of sin. In all, the, in all the different areas where, because of our historical difference, our, our sinning on the other side of the cross, cultural differences, blah, 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 all the ways that we could pick this apart, none of it takes away the truth that sin is weighty and it's awful. It destroys everything it touches. It is, it is a cancer that moves throughout all of creation and it poisons everything it touches and there is nothing we can do to fix it. It's just there. The system is broken, and apart from outside intervention, there is no hope for a broken and dying universe. Beloved, that is the weight of sin. If you have numbed yourself to that because you've been in the church so long and received so much grace that it seems kind of separate from you, I would remind you that you still live in a world touched by poison that is dying that is in desperate need of outside intervention, then nothing within the system can fix it. And if, and if you are someone who is so laser-focused on one area of sin, whether it's something you're habituated to or some injustice that was done to you, I would encourage you to take a step back and realize something. Sin is bigger than you think it is. And it's worse than you think it is. You live in a world that has no hope on its own. That's weighty. Sin is weighty. And, and, and the worst part of the whole thing is that it's totally pointless. Jesus created this universe to not experience those things. He created that, that, that more might be invited into relationship with him, that there might be full life, that there might be abundance and joy and intimacy and community. He created that, that there might be goodness. And sin has destroyed that machine. It has poisoned that vision. It has broken this beautiful creation. And you can't fix it. You can't fix it. You are just as poisoned as everything else in the machine. You are ravaged by sin. If you knew how ravaged you are by sin, it would crush you. Francis Schaeffer famously called human beings glorious ruins. He said that to see a human being is to walk into ancient ruins and see something that was once beautiful but is now destroyed. You are ravaged by sin. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's a bummer. See you, and see you guys later. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but God, but 
God is forgiving sin. Jesus came to earth to forgive sin. Jesus entered into his creation to break the curse. Jesus came to earth to forgive sin. That that the thing that has so ravaged you and everyone you love and everything that you hold dear has no power over him. The same way that you are powerless before the tide of the destruction of sin, death itself is powerless against our Lord. It has nothing that it can do to stop him. When Jesus came to this earth and he declared that the kingdom is at hand, he declared that sin no longer owned this creation. That that curse will be broken, that his creation will be restored, and his children will be brought into intimate, restored relationship and life with him. This is the truth of the gospel. Jesus came to earth to forgive sins. I think of Paul's teaching in Colossians chapter 1. If I can get to it. And this is where we'll kind of bring ourselves down. I, w- I want you guys to hear this. This is in Paul's prayer for the church at, at Colossians that he hasn't actually been to yet. He's writing to them having just heard about them. And he says this. Where is it? I pray that you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. That is the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood at the cross. Beloved, Jesus Christ came to earth to forgive sins. Come on. I I will end with this story. Uh, Matt Kreutzer reminded me of this story this morning, and and I I needed to hear it. There's, in in his book, uh, Ragamuffin Gospel, uh, a a guy named Brendan Manning tells tells a lot about grace, and he has this line, a story he tells near the end. He's he's, He's a Catholic priest, and he tells this story about uh, a woman who, who is seeing visions of Jesus, and she tells her church authorities that Jesus has been speaking to her in visions, and the bishop uh, who meets with her is a little, a little, thinks her claims to be a little dubious. And so he records the interaction like this. The bishop says, Is it true, ma'am, that you have visions of Jesus? He asks. Well, yes. Well, next time you have a vision, I want you to ask Jesus to tell you the sins that I confessed in my last confession. The woman was stunned. Did I hear you right, Bishop? You actually want me to ask Jesus to tell me the sins of your past? Exactly. Please call me if anything happens. Ten days later, 
The bishop heard back from the lady, and he said to her, Did you do what I asked? Yes, bishop, I asked Jesus to tell me your sins you confessed in your last confession. The bishop leaned forward with anticipation, his eyes narrowed. Well, what did Jesus say to you, ma'am? Bishop, she replied, these are his exact words. I can't remember. <laughs> Beloved, Jesus came to earth to forgive sin. That's your sins. That's everyone's sins. That's the sins that have destroyed this world that poison it. He came to earth not just to forgive them, but to eradicate them, to destroy them, to where they have no presence. That, that to even bring them to his attention, he would say, what are you talking about? He's forgotten them because they're forgettable, because they're gone. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that you came to this earth to forgive our sins. God, may we never become numb to that truth. May, may there be no concern in our heart that seems so weighty that it pushes us away from your truth of your gospel that sin no longer owns this world. God, may, may the truth of your love for your people that, that breaks all curses and all chains and brings freedom, God, may that truth be so weighty on our hearts. May that never lose its flavor to us. God, may you, may you burn that into our souls. May we, as, as the people in, your, in the house did, may we rejoice in your work because we've never seen anything like that. Because you destroyed those sins in our lives and in this world so utterly, God, we've never seen anything like that. May we rejoice and glorify you as they did. And God, to, to those in this room, who, who feel enslaved to sin, who, who, who even as we've been talking about this have been zoning in on that one thing that just seems like it owns their life. God, we ask that you would destroy that. God, we ask that you would bring about your freedom in this church and in this community and in this city, God. May you destroy sin in our lives and in our world. God, you came here to forgive sin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Jesus, we love you. We know you're capable of these things, and we trust you to do them. So we ask them boldly in your name. Amen.